We're continuing our trip through Romans. We're up to Romans 3, verses 21 to 31. Before I read that, let me pray. Father, we come to you today thanking you that uh, uh, you have been vindicated uh, in the cross of Christ and that that vindication uh, is our hope and our assurance. And so I pray today as we uh, delve further into the fact that, yes, you are merciful and just, uh, and that those two things are not uh, opposed to one another, but in fact are necessary for us to know the full salvation, full redemption, full forgiveness of sins. Would you help us with that today, we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Romans 3, 21 to 31, text is in the bulletin, also up on uh, the screens behind me. This is God's word, we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Marty came home from the preschool, and uh, on Tuesday, my day off, and we're getting ready to do our typical thing where we go to the grocery store, and then we were going to a, 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 a physical therapy appointment and all of that kind of stuff. And as we got in the car to get ready to back out of the driveway, I see a guy walking up my driveway that I don't know, which is, I'm like, okay, this is interesting. What, what, what does he want? And I, he comes up and he kind of looks in my window, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, this is awesome. What's happening here? And, um, he said, hey, we're down the street cutting, uh, doing some tree work for one of your neighbors, and I noticed that one of your trees is dead. And I'm like, I pay attention to this. I don't, I don't think my, my tree is dead. I'm like, thanks anyway. Well, let me give you the card. So, of course, Marty and I talk about that. Oh, I can't believe that guy came up here and lied to us about one of our trees being dead, blah, blah, blah. You know, these guys are always trying to get money and work and that kind of stuff. And you know, that's the typical positive way I think about people. And so, um, and so uh, we get back home from the grocery store, and I'm like, I'm going to go look at that tree. And I go out and I look at that tree, and I'm like, you know what? That tree is dead. <laughs> but then I think, wait, it's not actually on my property. I think it's on my neighbor's property. So, uh, because we've had this issue before, I know that my property line is exactly 18 feet from 
the uh, southeast corner of my house. So I went in the house, got a tape measure, came out and measured, and so this tree was 16 feet from the corner of the house. So by two feet, it was in, on my property. So then I began to think, well, you know, this guy, you know, he's fulfilling the American dream. He's out here doing this work and, you know, working hard and hustling and that kind of stuff. I'll give him a call. So I called him. They came out, looked at the tree. We made a deal and uh, he uh, cut the tree down. Mar this was the next day. And so Marty comes home from preschool and they're cutting the tree down. She sends me a picture. You know, there's a dude up in the top of it and, you know, all this stuff that I, I cannot, I, I, every time I have a tree cut down in my yard, I have to be somewhere else because I just can't watch it, you know. But they took the tree down, did a great job. However, my neighbor was livid because they had to lay part of the tree down on her driveway to cut it up. Now, after they were done, the, uh, there was not a bit of sawdust, nothing in her driveway. And so she was out there yelling at my tree cutters. And uh, in fact, the tree cutter came to Marty and said, well, I'm really sorry, you live where you live. This is good. So this neighbor's a friend of ours, and so Marty's like, do you think I should talk to her? And I'm like, oh yeah, you should talk to her. So she talks to her, and she's like, I can't believe they're you know, encroaching on my driveway. They're doing all this kind of stuff. And um, Marty says to her, well, this tree was dead, and we didn't want it to fall on your house. And so the inconvenience of you having to park on the street for an hour until you could get into your driveway probably was worth it, right? That this tree didn't fall on your house. This is a big tree. Um, so I didn't know it was a problem. She didn't know it was a problem. It wasn't something that we were concerned about at all. And thankfully, some uh, capitalistic American who was walking around in our neighborhood saw that and knew it needed to come down. One of the things that happens to us is, uh, and one of the things I think we're, we're not even aware of, we're so unaware of so much, but one of the things that I think we walk around unaware of is what our real problem is and what the real problem is in the universe. The way I tend to think about my problem is if I have guilt, I need to feel better. If I uh, have suffering, I need relief. If someone uh, uh, disappoints me or hurts me or sins against me, I need them to make it right. And those are the kind of the ways that, that we think about the way the world works and that what God does for us in that is he takes care of all that for us, which is true in as far as it goes. But when we view the world from a, you know, a man-centered, a Steve-centered viewpoint, uh, what we end up doing is we end up robbing the gospel often of its beauty, but not only its beauty, but the actual grace of assurance that we can have in believing what it is that we believe. 
And so what Paul's doing in this text and what he's, what he's, what he's getting at here for us uh, is answering a question uh, that he's, he spends a lot of time on, answering a question about what, what the real problem in the world, the universe, and with us is. And it's a, it's a problem and it's a question that we, we almost never ask, right? So what is the problem solved at the cross? Well, what we tend to think about that is, and, and, and before you read this text or thought about this this morning, you would probably think that the problem solved at the cross is my sin. Or the problem that's solved at the cross is the fact that God can forgive me, right? And that is good as far as it goes. But the deeper thing that, that Paul gets at here and the question that we almost never ask is, well, what about the character of God? What is it about the character of God that requires the death of the Son of God to be, so that we can be forgiven? So that we not only can be forgiven, but we can actually have the righteousness of God. Because what Paul wants to answer here in this question, in this, in, in this text is that God must be vindicated. That his justice must be vindicated. Now, the way we tend to think about that is, is that we don't think a whole lot about God's justice. We, we tend to want to think more about his mercy and his grace, and that is good, uh, and that is appropriate. But the mercy and the grace of God, actually, um, uh, if, if, if that's all we ever think about, or if we only think that's the only part of God's character, then first of all, the cross will not make a lot of sense to us. But beyond that, God's character gets called into question. Now, how could that be? Well, here's the thing. If you have ever been sinned against, if somebody's ever committed a crime against you, if somebody's ever really done something really terrible to you, right? And they get off scot-free. That's troublesome, isn't it? That's really, that, that, that's really bothersome. Um, one of the theologians I read in the last century who was really helpful for me uh, with this was a guy named Miroslav Volf, who was who's a, a Croatian uh, a theologian. I think he's at Yale now. Uh, and he talked about kind of re recovering and understanding the necessity of God's justice and the necessity of God's wrath as he suffered... Uh, during the genocide and the wars in the former Yugoslavia in the 90s. Because if we walk around with this kind of vague sense that, you know, uh, God's just favorably disposed towards everything and everything's just fine and, and that justice really is not a concern of God's, then what kind of God do we have, Right? And so that's what Paul is, is, is getting at here. And what he wants us to see is, when he says that God is both the just and the justifier, what he wants us to understand is, is that in the gospel, in the work that we have that Jesus Christ is doing for us, we actually have the, the, the assurance and the reality that God's justice is maintained and God's justice is satisfied, right? Right? Now, I, I'm, I'm gonna, I, I, 
I'm going to get, as we go through this this morning, I'm going to get into a little bit more about why that's the most important thing for us to understand instead of just that we're forgiven. Uh, Because the fact is, the character of God, who he is, how he is, uh, if we kind of short circuit looking at his justice, then the fact is you and I can't ever really be sure that our sin is forgiven. If, if God is just kind of willy-nilly about this, and, and you know that y- yourself, because inside of our brains, right, one of the ways we think about this is we carry around this thing where, you know, God's gracious, God's forgiving. And we most often think about that towards ourselves. Well, of course God forgives me because he knows my background and he knows, you know, how my parents messed me up or he, he knows how the, these things that are true about us. And so, of course, he forgives me, Right. But the problem with that is you and I both carry around in our brains other people that we think, you know, God really shouldn't forgive them, right? Well, you know, the, the, the problem with that is they think maybe that God really shouldn't forgive you. And so there has to be some standard, some bar of justice something that is uh, uh, perfectly just for us to be able to have any kind of sense that justice is ever done uh, and that forgiveness, mercy, grace is actually real and uh, ours in the work that Christ has done for us. So it's so important, and what Paul's getting at here is something that is deeply encouraging and deeply uh, assuring to us to say that in the gospel, not only is your sin forgiven, not only do we find redemption, not only do you get the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not only are those things true, but even more deeply important than that is, is that God's character as judge, God's character as gracious is vindicated. So the, the question that we almost never ask ourselves is then, how could God forgive sin, Right? Uh, how is it even possible for him to do that? Because the, 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 the fact is, if, if, if we have a judge who just in every court case forgives every single thing without any uh, 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 judgment or justice ever being meted out, if sin is never addressed, if crime is never punished, then what good is he, Right? And so what we have to realize is, is that forgiveness always required that it always requires that the sinned against must take to himself, at least to some degree, the weight of the other sin against them. When you actually forgive someone, what does it feel like? Well, often it feels kind of bitter, doesn't it? Often it feels kind of lame because what, what, what our drive is when someone actually sins against us because we look like God, because we have the image of God in us, there's a sense of justice there. There's a sense of the fact that, you know, something terrible has happened here and, and it needs to be addressed. It needs to be uh, rectified. It needs to be redeemed. It needs to be paid for, right? So that when we forgive, what we're doing is we're removing from that person the weight of them paying for the sin. And guess who ends up paying for their sin, in a sense, when you forgive them? You do. You feel the weight of that. 
you take upon yourself uh, uh, the fact that they sinned against you. You're not going to hold it against them. You're not going to demand justice. And your act of forgiving is actually taking part of that, the pain, the difficulty, the challenge of that, and putting it upon yourself. So if we don't understand the necessity of God's wrath on sin and unrighteousness, then our forgiveness becomes a problem. So what happens there is, is that the, the standard whereby God forgives sin uh, becomes a very subjective standard. And if it's a subjective standard, then you and I both know that uh, when we have a subjective standard, it's hard to know where you stand. But if God's wrath has actually been addressed, if God's wrath has actually been atoned, if God's wrath has actually, as Paul says here, been propitiated, that is that it has been meted out and turned aside from us because it was turned on someone else, then we can, then we can rest easy. We can have assurance and we can know that when we ultimately stand before God's judge, uh, uh, judgment, we can be assured that we have the forgiveness of sins, the righteousness of Christ, and that we're set free from the consequence of our sin. Next slide. So one of the craziest uh, stories in the Bible is the story of King David. And it's been an abused story by a lot of people because when we talk about David, we we you remember the story in the spring, when kings go out to war, David's lounging around on the roof of his palace, and he sees this naked woman across the way who's gorgeous, taking a bath. He's the king. He can do whatever he wants to, so he takes her. And she's even married to one of his soldiers. And of course, he has this uh, illicit affair with her. He tries to cover it up. He's very concerned that other people not find out about what he's done. She turns up pregnant. And so to make things right, he murders. He murders her husband, essentially. He makes sure he gets placed in the battle where it's the hottest and where it's the most violent, and then he dies. So he's committed adultery. Uh, he has uh, taken a woman. Uh, uh, that was not his wife, um, and he's committed murder, he's lied, he's cheated, he's stolen, a whole list of things. So God sends the prophet Nathan to him to address this with him. And one of the things that happens there when Nathan goes and speaks to him as he tells him that great story about there's a poor guy who has a cute little lamb, and the lamb is the dearest thing to him, and a rich guy comes and steals the lamb from him. And David, in his righteous anger, as the king says, that rich man must die. And Nathan says, you're the man. So by his own words, David condemns himself. He must die. But Nathan says to him, you're not going to die. God has put your sin away. Now, the reason why that text gets abused is because pastors who have terrible character, religious leaders have terrible, terrible character, and then get caught, use this as a means to say, see, David was okay, I'm okay. Terrible. Just terrible. It's the worst. Because what they've done there is they haven't reckoned with the reality of what it meant for God to put David's sin away. 
Because think about it for a moment. What if, uh, what if you are there when uh, Nathan comes and uh, uh, confronts David with his sin? And uh, you think, wait a minute. My friend was murdered. And he just gets off scot-free. How can that be? Where's the justice in that? What if you're standing on Calvary the day Jesus tells the thief next to him that he'll be with him that day in paradise and that thief killed your grandmother? Right? And so what begins to happen there is if you begin to think about that long and hard enough, you begin to kind of come to the conclusion that how is it possible that God can just put away David's sin? How is it possible that he can just kind of do this? Because, and, and, and what happens to us with that is we forget about the absolute necessity of what God is doing at the cross. So when Paul says here, you know, that God kind of passed over the sins before, but now a righteousness from him has been revealed, what he's saying to us is all of those sins that God passed over in the Old Testament, all of those things that happened, that all of that was pointing towards the fact that God would ultimately vindicate his justice by pouring out his wrath and his justice and his judgment upon Jesus Christ so that those sins weren't just passed over, they weren't just ignored, they actually were atoned for, but they were atoned for in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now God alludes to this early on in the Bible. Uh, you, we're familiar with the story of Abraham, that God comes to Abraham, makes all kinds of promises to him, tells him that he's going to have babies, that he's going to be a great nation, and that in him all the world will be blessed. But there's this really weird encounter that Abraham uh, has uh, with God. It's in uh, Genesis chapter 15. And we read this, because Abraham asks the question that we all ought to ask when God makes the promise of forgiveness, when God makes the promise of heaven, when God makes the promise of eternal life, when God does these things, we ought to ask the same question that Abraham asked. And that is, as we'll see in the text, how can I know? How can I be sure? Right? Now, our tendency to answer that question is, well, you can be sure because you believe. Do you? Sometimes you believe, and sometimes you don't. Sometimes you have 15% belief and 85% doubt. Sometimes you have 99% doubt. Sometimes, I mean, if, if, you, if you think that the reason why you have forgiveness is because you believe, then what happens when your belief struggles? What happens when your faith is failing? What happens when you think, I don't, is this stuff really true? How, how can this be? Well, God answers that question here in this text when he comes to Abraham. He says, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Next slide, Cody. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate as Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, you've given me no children. 
So a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Abraham's really old. The clock is ticking. And Sarah's old too. So he took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And we have the great text there, verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So Abraham's believing. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, he just believed God, didn't he? And it was credited to him as righteousness. Sovereign Lord, how can I know? How can I know? So the Lord does this really crazy thing. And if you're squeamish, uh, start reading the bulletin or go get a cup of coffee, right? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. They're just, you know, they're too small. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Next slide. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Now, you might be thinking, what in the world is going on here? You know, God comes and makes these great promises, and a cow's got to die, <laughs> right? I mean, what is going on here? Well, what God is doing here is he is making a concession to Abram's culture so that Abram can understand and have the answer to the question, how can he know? Because in the ancient Near East, when you made an agreement with someone, when you made a contract with someone, when you made a covenant with someone, you did these kinds of things. And so what you did is you took those animals and you cut them in half. And by doing that and walking, as we'll see, between those animals, what you're saying is, if I don't live up to my part of the agreement, may it be to me as it has been to these animals, right? So what we would expect is when God comes and makes this promise to Abram, what's he going to ask Abram to do? I've made you these promises. Walk before me with integrity, Abram and that Abram would then walk through the midst of those animals torn apart with the understanding that if I don't keep my end of the agreement, God's going to do this to me, right? So as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and that they'll be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Next slide. And when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot, and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to him, right? In other words, when Abram says, how can I know you're going to keep your word? How can I know you're going to keep your promises? How can I know that you're going to do this? God doesn't throw the thing back on Abram and say, you can know, Abram, by doing the things you're supposed to do. 
by continuing to believe and by continuing to take me at my word. Because he knows that Abram's faith is going to wax and wane. There's the episode with Hagar. There's the fact that twice, with, once with Pharaoh and once with one of his neighbors, he lies about his wife because he's afraid that he's going to get killed if, 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 uh, and, he, and he prostitutes his, wives, his wife to their harems. I mean, Abram is the father of the faithful. Yes, he is. His faith looks a lot like mine, <laughs> right? Oh, Lord, I believe. Yikes. No, I don't, Right? So what God's saying here to him is the reason why you can take me at my word, the reason why you can believe me is not, and, and, and when you come to those places in your life where you think, is this true? You don't throw yourself back on yourself to say, how am I believing today? But rather you go to the place where you say, God's the one who walked between the carcasses. God is the one who took upon himself the fact that if I do not keep my end of the agreement, he not only keeps his end of the agreement, but he will take upon himself the consequences of me not keeping my agreement. Right? And so that's what you have to see here is, is that it's not just that, that it, it got, when God passes through those uh, uh, broken pieces of animals. He's not saying, Abram, don't worry about it. He's not saying, Abram, your sin is not a big deal. No, the fact is that sin must be paid for. God is just. And if he is not just, then we, it, it, then we should also question his mercy and his grace. But if he is just, and we can rest in the fact that sin is addressed, that it is atoned for, that it is paid for, that justice is served, then we can have real assurance that our sin uh, is forgiven. Now, you may be thinking, well, wait a minute. You know, if God is so great and so good, why is he mad at sin anyway? Which is a funny question. I don't like to think about God being angry at unrighteousness. I don't like to think, until, of course, we want God to be angry at our enemies. Right? So, the fact is, if, if there's not wrath on sin, then we can't say that God loves us, because God would be indifferent. And, you know, the difference between, you know, the real difference between uh, 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 love and wrath, it, there's not a lot of difference there. The real opposite of love is indifference. God's love drives him to deal with the problem that separates us from him and keeps us and keeps his creation from uh, being what it was that he intended. It to be. So the difference between wrath and indifference is God's glory. So that what we see here is actually in the wrath of God being meted out so that sin is paid for, we see God's glory. We see his glory in the fact that his 
righteous character is upheld and we see his glory in the fact that he does that in a way because he loves us and that his love predates any response on our part so that uh, his love, his grace, and his mercy is not based in any way upon our potential, upon our works, or upon our actions, right? And then lastly, what he says here is, on the contrary, we uphold the law. Why is it good news that the law is upheld? Because if the law is upheld, you know there's a standard that God judges everybody by. And if there's a standard that God judges everybody by, we can see what the objective nature of that standard is. And we can see, as Paul says here, that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So there's the standard, and you're all failing. <laughs> okay? Um, and uh, uh, the, the fact of the matter is, that's good news. It's really good news. Because if we don't see the objective standard for what it is, and we don't see our failure for what it is, then somehow or other we're left with this weird space where we have to negotiate with God, or we have to boast, or we have to work our way into his good uh, graces and his good pleasure, when in fact the bridge between those two things is the active obedience, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for us, so that the law is upheld, and it is met perfectly in Jesus Christ. And because I am in Christ, I have perfect righteousness. It, here's, here's the thing, and that's why Paul can say there's no room for boasting, there's, because it's all, everything that we have uh, in regards our faith, everything that we have regarding our relationship with God is based, founded, sourced, centered on what Jesus has done for us. So if this is true, if God's character is vindicated, you can have real joy. Even as you confess, I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You can have real assurance that God really does love you, that he really does own you, and one day, before the angels and the demons and everybody else, what you will see and what you will hear is God's justice vindicated and him setting you at his table. Because Christ paid the penalty. Because Christ took upon himself your failure, your sin. Thing, the thing that you, and, and, and it's not just that. But because of God's character, you can rest assured that that sacrifice really counts for you. You can know. You can know. And that knowledge doesn't lead us to pride, but it leads us to joy, to confidence in the love of God for us in Jesus Christ. The strength of the church uh, in the mission of the church and in the work of the church is found right here. People are able to do incredible things in response to the gospel because they are certain that God's justice has been vindicated in Jesus Christ. And so as they rest in that work, 
they are motivated and changed and energized to spend their lives because they're absolutely certain that Jesus is for them. They're absolutely certain. They're absolutely certain and they can rest in the reality that Christ really did this. And because of God's character, we can rest easy. That's great news for us today. And as we come to the table, we have this opportunity, you see, to proclaim to ourselves, to proclaim to the world around us that this gospel is real and that Jesus actually did uh, this work for us. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of the faith. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. The gifts of God for the people of God. Let's confess our sins. Almighty God, we have sinned and fallen short of your glory. You freely justified us through faith in Jesus Christ. Yet we gave ourselves to self-justification. Your law and prophets testified to a righteousness apart from the law. Yet we gave ourselves to hard-hearted unbelief and boasting. Your son's propitiation satisfied your wrath. Yet we gave ourselves to self-righteousness. Lord Jesus, son of the living God, have mercy on us. Our only hope is in your finished work. You lived the life we should have lived. You died the death we should have died in our place as our substitute to make full atonement for our sins. Brothers and sisters, hear these words of encouragement. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The scriptures tell us on the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it, just as I do now, ministering in his name, and he gave it to his disciples. The love of God is made manifest to us in the fact that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The love of God is manifest to us in the fact that when Christ died for us, the justice and the mercy of God were perfectly perfectly displayed, perfectly met. That's our hope. That's what we rest in. That's the source of our joy. That's the source of our confidence. Listen, today, if you are resting in the fact, uh, boasting uh, or um, uh, I guess the opposite of boasting is kind of groveling in your sin or boasting in your performance, you missed it, right? But if God is really just and his justice has been satisfied, you have every reason today for joy, for
for hope, for assurance. And so Jesus gives to us these things to hold in our hands, to taste and to see, to know the reality uh, that he actually has paid for our sins, that he's actually made full atonement, and that the wrath that our sin justly deserved has been eternally extinguished in Jesus Christ. That's what we proclaim when we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If that's your hope today, and sometimes you have a strong grip on that, and sometimes you have a weak grip on that, uh, the fact is the strength of what I've just told you uh, doesn't rest on how strongly you hold it. It rests in the strength of the God who is both just and justifier. If that's your hope and you proclaim that to a body of believers somewhere, this, uh, he welcomes you this morning to taste and see and to know in your heart and your soul that uh, the glory of God has been maintained in your justification and you can stand before God's throne of judgment with your head held high because Jesus Christ has fully atoned for your sins. That's our hope this morning. As the elders come down front to assist me, let me remind you that uh, the outer ring is wine, the inner rings are grape juice, underneath each cup is a gluten-free wafer. If you're unable to come down front, raise your hand and we'll see to it that you get served. Once everyone has been served, uh, we'll eat and drink together. <clears throat>